Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. One of the most prominent January 6th defendants goes on trial. A jury hands down convictions for the founder of the militia group Oath Keepers. Georgia voters came out in record numbers over the weekend to cast ballots in the runoff race for the Senate. Some say this indicates a win for De Democrat Raphael Warnock. What can challenger Herschel Walker do? Former President Trump under fire for what he says was an unexpected dinner guest at Mar-a-Lago. How Republicans on Capitol Hill are reacting. A new Pentagon report on the power of China's military. It says the communist country will likely have more than a thousand additional nuclear warheads by 2035. After a tragic fire in China, protests known as the White Paper Revolution spread throughout the world. Countless people showing they're fed up with the Chinese regime's tyrannical leadership. And we hear insights on Dr. Anthony Fauci's deposition in a case that's set to decide whether the government can pressure big tech firms into censoring posts and users. A jury today convicted the founder of the militia group Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, of seditious conspiracy. It's in connection with the January 6th Capitol breach. The Justice Department accused Rhodes of instigating a plot to use force to block Congress from certifying the 2020 presidential election. Rhodes is a former Army paratrooper and a disbarred attorney. He's one of the most prominent defendants in the January 6th trials. And in Georgia... Early voting in the state's Senate runoff hit record-breaking numbers over the weekend. Could this signal a win for incumbent Raphael Warnock? NTD's Arlene Richards reports. A day before Thanksgiving, Georgia Senate Democrat Raphael Warnock won his challenge to the state's law against voting on the Saturday after a holiday. Over the weekend, voters turned out in record numbers to get their ballots in early. A political commentator says Warnock's challenge may have paid off for the Senate incumbent. Early voting, early voting tends to favor Democrats heavily, so this push may be uh, indicative of uh, a win for, for Warnock, uh, just depending on what, what in-person voter turnout uh, proves to be on the actual election day uh, next Tuesday for the runoff elections here. He said a win for Warnock could help Senate Democrats pass some of the less controversial bills. According to a recent poll, the candidates are now tied. But the poll says that independents are favoring Warnock by about four percentage points. What does Walker have to do to get the independent vote? Yeah, so the polls are pretty close. And I think what independent voters are, are looking for in terms of uh, policy We've seen across the country, they don't want extreme policies. They want somebody who's going to be able to govern more toward the center, who's going to work to build alliances, and who's going to work on kitchen table issues like inflation, on gas prices. Some reports say Georgia Republicans are frustrated that Walker didn't win. Walker's campaign just got endorsed by Governor Kemp. Um, can Kemp convince frustrated Republicans to vote for Walker? Kemp's not on the ballot. This is all going to be about how voters feel about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, and again, which candidate is best speaking to, to their issues. Over in Arizona, the attorney general's race is likely facing a recount. This comes as 14 out of 15 counties have approved election results. Secretary of State Katie Hobbs filed a lawsuit late Monday night to compel the Cochise County Board of Supervisors to approve their election results. 
Under Arizona law, all counties must confirm election results within 20 days of an election. Boards that don't meet the deadline could face criminal charges. Cochise County board members decided to table their decision until Friday. No criminal charges have been filed. But the board in Mojave County complied with the law despite delaying their vote. In a Twitter post on Monday, Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake said one board member voted against his will. Um, I vote aye under duress. Um, I found out today that I have no choice but to vote aye or I'll be arrested and charged with a felony. Meanwhile, Lake responded to Maricopa County approving its election results. Maricopa County just couldn't wait to certify their botched election. The botched election where half of Election Day voting centers were inoperable. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And the leader of the Republican Party today hinting at opposing former President Trump's bid for the White House. This after Trump hosted a controversial dinner guest who he says he didn't know. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more on how some Republican lawmakers are scrambling to distance themselves. Just two weeks after former President Trump officially launched his bid for the White House, attacks are mounting. The most recent over controversial dinner guests. Just last Tuesday, Trump hosted at his home Kanye West along with a few of his friends, one of whom is a man by the name of Nick Fuentes, whom many are labeling as a white supremacist. Fuentes denies this label, but despite this, Republicans have been quick to react, distancing themselves from this negative messaging. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier today fell just short of directly targeting and criticizing Trump. Here's a look. Let me just say that there is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy. And anyone meeting with people advocating that point of view, in my judgment, are highly unlikely to ever be elected president of the United States. Now, Trump has repeatedly defended himself on Truth Social, saying that he simply didn't know who Fuentes was, which is a comment that was reiterated today by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy when he was asked about this issue. And McCarthy's reaction is a bit more surprising and interesting than McConnell's. While McConnell has been faced with criticism repeatedly by former President Trump, McCarthy is in a very tight position right now with regards to Republican support. He needs nearly all Republican support in order to take the speaker's gavel come January. Um, so by, in a way, defending former President Trump here, he's you can tell he's really trying to hold on to all of that Republican support and not lose any um, Republican members who may be in support of former President Trump. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The Department of Defense has released its annual report on the power of China's military. The report says the Chinese Communist Party could have more than 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. The new Department of Defense report breaks down the Chinese Communist Party's military and security strategy. The report names the CCP as the biggest threat to the U.S. and to the free and open international system. One area in particular is the Taiwan Strait, which is the body of water between Taiwan and mainland China. Earlier on Tuesday, the CCP said it organized its naval and air forces to drive away a U.S.-guided missile cruiser, claiming that the U.S. ship had no right to be there. 
Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder said the claims were false and that the CCP is trying to establish a new normal. Whereas uh, U.S. and international ships and planes have operated in international airspace uh, or in international waterways for decades and then suddenly changing and saying, no, this belongs to us and now you're violating uh, our sovereignty. Again, it's trying to change the narrative, change the status quo, and in fact, fabricate a situation that previously all would agree did not exist. And so again, this is why it's important that we will continue to sail, operate and fly in those areas. The report says China currently has 400 nuclear warheads and the communist country will likely have 1500 nukes by 2035. America currently has about 3,700 nuclear warheads, with about 1,700 currently deployed outside of the United States, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute think tank. The U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says the CCP wants to be the number one power in the world by 2049. He explained that there are lots of lessons learned from the war in Ukraine. And one of the things people are learning is that war on paper is a whole lot different than real war. And when blood is spilled and people die and real tanks are being blown up, things are a little bit different. There's a lot of friction and fog and death in combat. And, and for someone who has, for a military that hasn't fought in combat since uh, fighting the Vietnamese in 1979, they would be playing, uh, you know, a very, very dangerous game to cross the Straits and invade the island of Taiwan. The Pentagon's report can be found at defense.gov. Jason Perry, NTD News. And for the past few days, countless people have taken to the streets to join vigils and protests across the world, including in China, Canada, England, and the United States, in what's being called the White Paper Revolution. They're supporting citizens in China after at least 10 people died after being locked in during a building fire. NTD's David Lamb spoke with vigil goers at a California university on Monday night. Democracy now! Democracy now! And dictatorship. And On Monday night, hundreds of people gathered at UC Berkeley's iconic Sather Gate to pay tribute to those who died trapped in a building fire in China. The candlelight vigil follows the deaths of at least 10 people on November 24th in Xinjiang province's capital, Urumqi. First responders were unable to reach an apartment fire that was left to burn for hours due to the COVID-19 blockade and lockdowns stemming from the zero COVID policy set by the Chinese Communist Party or CCP. The doors are locked due to the COVID, zero COVID policy, which is ridiculous. I think that's the voice from hell. Many of those who showed up didn't know who organized the candlelight vigil. They just heard about the gathering through social media. The CCP regularly crushes any sign of open dissent, including banning phrases and slogans from social media. In response, citizens now use blank sheets of white paper as a sign of protest. Because they are more brave than us. They have more courage than us. They are facing, risking their entire life to going on the street. And I think this is what we're happening here, uh, that, you know, we, being in the States, being in Berkeley, we have the freedom to say whatever we want to say. But it is my sincere wish that everyone in mainland China can be like this. Supporters like Andrew and Emma hope people in China know that people outside are supporting the protesters, those who have endured the CCP's subjugation for decades. 
Others noted worldwide support. This signifies that there truly needs to be a change. When a lot of people worldwide are doing this, this means something. It's because the people inside China can't do it themselves. Like, it's, it's hard. The government will shut them down. The government will kill them. So right now, the vigil is still happening. The event started at 7 p.m. and it's about 8.30 now. People are still here. They're still paying tribute to those that were victims of the Urumqi fire in Xinjiang. There'll be two more vigils in the Bay Area, and it's all to call for the end of the CCP and the end of dictatorship. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And turning now to Dr. Anthony Fauci and insights from his recent deposition in a case that could decide whether the government here in the U.S. should be able to pressure big tech firms into censoring posts and users. Earlier today, I spoke with Janine Yunus, litigation counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. She's representing two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, a document that advocated for protecting high-risk groups from COVID during the pandemic instead of enforcing mass lockdowns. They say they've been affected by big tech censorship, which they believe was influenced or directed by government officials. So what did Fauci have to say? Janine Yunus, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. Now, Janine, you sat through Dr. Fauci's deposition. What stood out to you about it? Well, what stood out to me was that he couldn't recall anything specific, uh, no specific emails or people. He seemed to be very evasive in answering questions. I would say that was the number one takeaway. And we'll get into some of this in more detail, but to start with, we know from emails that Fauci and others at the NIH wanted to publicly discredit the Great Barrington Declaration, but he said in his deposition that at the time it was published, he was too busy to be concerned with it. What's your response to that? <laughs> well, we know from emails between him and Francis Collins at the NIH that that's not really true. Um, they had talked about, it. well, it was Collins's words were that they needed to do a swift uh, and devastating takedown of the declaration. Um, there were exchanges about, you know, calling the scientists dangerous nonsense. Um, so we know that's not true, and I suspect it was a way to just sort of uh, squirm out of the question because he um, because he did play a role in making sure that the scientists' views weren't heard. You've said Fauci defended lockdowns on the grounds that China had used them to contain the virus, and you said that he didn't express regret about the losses that lockdowns inflicted. He really doesn't seem to acknowledge that they have very many losses. And he, he, that wasn't discussed so much at the deposition, but he insisted that you know his friend or deputy Cliff Lane had gone to China in early 2020, and he said that Lane saw that they had successfully contained the virus through lockdowns, so we needed to adopt uh, social distancing measures ourselves. Now, I, I noticed he didn't use the word lockdown. He kept saying social distancing measures, but it was clear that he was talking about lockdowns. Um, I think he knows that lockdown is no longer a very popular term. Yeah, do you think this rebranding is a way to distance himself from the policy and evade responsibility for it, considering what's happening now in China with massive violent anti-lockdown protests? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think there's some, like, confusing people a little bit. So they think, if they hear him, they say, oh, he just supported social distancing, not lockdowns. But what is social distancing, really? It's and lockdowns are basically just government-mandated social distancing, you know, saying that businesses can't be open because people can't stay far enough apart or whatever. Um, it was clear to me from context he wasn't just talking about, uh, you know, staying six feet away from someone at the dinner table or something. He was talking about uh, government-imposed restrictions. 
And Fauci apparently said he couldn't recall the details of a phone call with scientists early in the pandemic who told him that it's likely the virus came from a lab and he couldn't name any of the studies that he said had convinced him that masks work. What would justice look like to you in the context of this apparent abdication of responsibility? Well, you know, unfortunately, this lawsuit is is uh, suing Fauci in his official capacity, so he can't be held personally responsible. I, I've seen lots of people on social media saying they hope he winds up in prison or, you know, out of a job. Um, he is, when you sue someone in their official capacity, they can't really be held personally responsible. They don't usually suffer personally. So what would, you know, the outcome here is that uh, um, a judge says that uh, government cannot be telling social media companies who and what to censor. Um, but it's unlikely that I think Fauci will get the, you know, the punishment that I think a lot of people feel he deserves for not uh, having any concern for human and civil rights. Is there anything else that you think our viewers should know about this? Um, one other thing that I noticed was he sort of held uh, um, those who oppose government restrictions to a very high standard of proof. So he would often say, you know, well, there were no studies, there were no randomized control studies, or there weren't enough. But when it came to his favored policies, which are government restrictions, masks, lockdowns, mandates, um, he would seize on the thinnest of evidence, you know, so his friend going to China and seeing that lockdowns work there, which is, of course, we know China can't be relied on for accuracy and reporting the death toll. And also, they obviously didn't effectively contain the virus because they're having like their eighth round of lockdowns right now, which are spurring protests. So, um, you know, it, it's clear that he has an extreme bias in, in favor of government restrictions. Yeah, fascinating insights. Thank you so much, Janine Yunus, Litigation Counsel at New Civil Liberties Alliance. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Biden and Congress are scrambling to prevent a nationwide railroad strike. What they're vowing to do and how we ended up here. NTD's Iris Tao has more. President Biden has called himself a proud pro-union president, but now he's staring at a holiday season rail strike that could threaten the economy. Meeting with lawmakers today, Biden calls on Congress to block the strike by imposing a deal that some unions can get behind. And, uh, and Congress, I think, has to act to prevent it. It's not an easy call, but I think we have to do it. The economy's at risk. A nationwide rail strike could come as early as next Friday on December 9th. And that's after union workers rejected a deal previously negotiated in September, saying it lacks basic days. And we had members who were forced by their employer or the railroads to stay home in quarantine without pay. Striking is the last option for us. And the cost of the rail strike could be huge. Not only could it throw holiday shopping off the rails, it could also idle shipments of food and fuel and strand millions of travelers. The estimated economic damage, $2 billion per day. And as Biden warns that it could devastate our economy, congressional leaders are vowing to take up legislation to force a deal as soon as possible. Again, I don't like going against the ability of, of uh, unions to strike, but weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. We're going to try to solve this ASAP. On the Republican side, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy says he expects the bill to pass, but it also criticizes Democrats for dealing with it the last minute. If you're passing a bill to force the rail workers to work, how strong is your economy? 
Meanwhile, while in Michigan today, President Biden touts the economy, citing what he calls slowing inflation and low unemployment. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The Supreme Court today heard arguments in an immigration-related case. The Biden administration wants the high court to uphold a deportation policy it tried to implement last year. However, some say the administration acted unlawfully in implementing the policy. Our reporter spoke with a lawyer. The Biden administration presented oral arguments at the Supreme Court on Tuesday, trying to get the high court to reinstate a deportation policy implemented last fall. In September 2021, the Department of Homeland Security implemented a policy that made it harder to deport illegal immigrants. The policy paused deportations unless individuals had committed acts of terrorism or espionage or were a threat to public safety. However, federal law requires the detention of people who are in the U.S. illegally and who have been convicted of serious crimes. This law was passed by Congress, the legislative branch. Homeland Security is part of the executive branch, which can't change laws. Texas and Louisiana then sued at a federal court in Texas to block the policy. They won the case, which led to the policy being paused. Newsmax reports that the judge in the case said the Biden administration can't change laws passed by Congress, saying, whatever the outer limits of its authority, the executive branch does not have the authority to change the law. I do agree with the federal judge who ruled in favor of Texas and against the Biden administration. I do believe that the Biden administration is overstepping their authority here. Bobby Ann Cox is a lawyer who stopped New York State from creating quarantine camps when she sued the state on the basis of separation of powers and won the case. The Biden administration reportedly told Supreme Court justices ahead of Tuesday's hearing that the deportation policy does not go against federal immigration law because the wording of the law allows for adjustments. Um, and our federal immigration law clearly says that the federal government shall remove within 90 days any illegal immigrant who's here who's committed a crime. And the word shall does not afford any sort of discretionary measures by the executive branch or by the agency when they're trying to carry out this law. The Biden administration said in a written high court filing that the policy was reasonable, especially since Congress has not given Homeland Security enough money to vastly increase the number of people it deports. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision by June of next year. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. An official in the Biden administration's energy department is charged with theft for allegedly stealing a woman's luggage at the airport. Sam Brinton is part of the Energy Department's Office of Nuclear Energy. The position is Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Spent Fuel and Waste Disposition. According to the Energy Department, Brenton self-identifies as gender fluid and is considered one of the first openly gender fluid officials in the Biden administration. A criminal complaint filed in October says that Brenton took a woman's suitcase from a carousel at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport on September 16th. The suitcase is allegedly worth over $2,000. Police reviewed video footage of the carousel and identified Brenton. Footage shows the official taking the identifying tag off the suitcase and using the suitcase in at least two other trips on September 18th and October 9th. A police officer called Brenton to discuss the incident on October 9th. Brenton confirmed possessing the suitcase, but denied stealing it, saying it was a mistake and blamed being tired. Brenton was charged with felony theft of movable property without consent. The charge could end with five years in prison, a $10,000 fine, or both. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And coming up in World Cup action, the U.S. played Iran today. They needed a victory to advance to the next round. 
find out how it went and the latest in the controversy between the two teams. Stay tuned for the details after this short break. World Cup action. The United States beat Iran one to nothing today to advance to the next stage. Christian Pulisic scored the game's only goal, coming in the 38th minute. The team will play the Netherlands on Saturday in a win-or-go-home matchup. And now for more sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin. Thank you, Steph. The United States and Iran played a pivotal match at the World Cup today, but so much more may be at stake than just a trip to the next round. According to CNN, the families of Iran's World Cup team have been threatened with imprisonment and torture if the players failed to, quote, behave ahead of their match against the U.S. Now, in this instance, behave seems to mean singing the national anthem and not joining any political protest against the Tehran regime. The regime has been rocked by a significant human rights movement following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died in September after being detained by the morality police for not abiding by the strict dress code. The players initially refused to sing the national anthem before their opener against England on November 21st. Reportedly, though, they were then threatened by members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps after the match. The team then took part in singing the country's national anthem before their next game. And in golf news, Tiger Woods will not be taking part in the Hero World Challenge this week as originally planned because of plantar fasciitis in his right foot. The 15-time major champion is still planning to play with Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth in the latest edition of the match on December 10 though. He's also planning to take part in a father-son competition at the PNC Championship the following week, though both events will allow him to use a cart. And for your sports viewing schedule this evening, the NBA has a triple header planned featuring a rematch of last year's Western Conference Finals as the Golden State Warriors face the Mavericks in Dallas. And finally, for you hockey fans, nine NHL games are on tap for tonight, including the Tampa Bay Lightning and star winger Nikita Kucherov, who leads the league in assists, playing at the first place Boston Bruins. And that's a wrap for sports. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.